Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now and take this word and fill it with your presence to make it alive in our hearing this morning. Lord, prepare us through these words. Lord, grant us comfort and endurance through these words. Lord, help me as the preacher to expound the scriptures in a way that uh, brings life to the hearers. And Lord, open all of our hearts as you would move among us this morning to receive exactly what you would have us receive today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're almost at the end of time. Almost at the end of time. End of time is next week. That's right. The end of time is on the uh, Christ the King Sunday. That is the end of the Christian year. And then a new Christian year begins on the first Sunday of Advent, which will be the 28th of November. So this is the Sunday before the end of time, and that's when we get that passage out of uh, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 13. Uh, a lot of scholars call this the little apocalypse, the little apocalypse. And apocalypse literally means uh, unveiling. I think we actually heard uh, teaching about that earlier this year. An apocalypse is an unveiling. But it also refers to a type of, of Jewish literature that really began in the, I mean, we can see uh, the first strains of it all the way back to Isaiah and Amos and Zechariah and places like that. It begins to bubble up, but it really comes to its fullness in the intertestamental period. We see Jewish apocalyptic literature coming to the fore. It was, that type of literature was meant to reveal the spiritual significance of tumultuous events for the purpose of encouraging God's people to hope, giving them hope and endurance, promoting hope and endurance among the people of God. So when Jesus tells his disciples about the destruction of the temple, which sounded like the end of the world to them, when he tells them about disasters and persecutions to come, he is not trying to scare them. He is not trying to terrify them, but to prepare them and to encourage them. You see, if you yourself or the Christian community of which you are a part of are enduring in a tribulation, uh, here's what you need. You need to see beyond the present reality to have the veil lifted so that you can see that there are spiritual realities, spiritual realities, principalities, powers, uh, God's angels, uh, opposing forces of the adversary. All of these things are at work behind current events. You need to see that, to you need to have the veil lifted so that you can see the truth that God is still sovereign and God is in control. His hand is guiding history. And we all need to hear in those times, do not give up, God wins. That's the purpose of this kind of talk, this apocalyptic discourse from Jesus. Do not give up, God wins. So the purpose of Jesus' discourse here is to forewarn and forearm his disciples in order to give them encouragement and to promote endurance. And so Jesus is teaching about, the, about future events. And this is important for us because we, we tend to be speculative when we think about last things. But Jesus' point of, the, of telling these things about future events is very practical and not speculative. See, in Mark 13, Jesus gives them information, here's what to expect, and then he gives them an imperative. This is what you should do about it. In other words, he says, Either these are the things that are going to happen, here's how you should react. 
And that's exactly how we're going to unpack this scripture that we've just heard read this morning. We are going to look at what Jesus told his disciples to expect and then how they were to respond. And here is, listen, here is the counterintuitive point, the counterintuitive element of Jesus' apocalyptic teaching. Instead of saying this is the end, almost after every one of these upcoming events, Jesus says that's not the end. This is an apocalyptic discourse about it's not the end. Here's the apocalyptic truth, but that is not the end. When Jesus, so Jesus says when these things occur, that's not the end. Rather, this is what you should expect to be the new normal. Tired of hearing that, but here we go. Jesus says, expect this to be the new normal between my first and my second coming. This is the new normal. So he says, expect the destruction of Jerusalem. He says to expect spiritual deception. He says to expect tumultuous world events and natural disasters. And he says to expect persecution. And we're going to unfold each one of those. And so let's dive right in. Expect the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, that's how this apocalyptic discourse began. Mark chapter 13, verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That was an astonishing statement. And then Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 14 and following, But when you see the abomination of desolation, in other words, something that is so abominable, something so unholy, that the Spirit of God flees the temple, leaves the temple, it's been desecrated. So when you see the desecrating sacrilege is what it means, the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I'm going to just stop right there. The, that, that phrase that sounds so strange to us, abomination of desolation, had actually occurred in 100 already, and the Jews knew about it in 167, Antiochus Epiphanes set up a statue of Zeus in the temple precincts and slaughtered a pig on the high altar. That was the abomination that caused desolation then. So Jesus is saying, when you see something like that, when you see a foreign ruler or a foreign general take over your city and desecrate the holy place, that's what I want you to be watching out for about the destruction of Jerusalem. So let, he says, when you see that happening, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So that prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. A.D. 70. And by the way, Mark is writing his gospel. Jesus is speaking this around the year 33. Mark pens these words around the year 65 A.D. by best estimates. And so the destruction of Jerusalem and the desecration of the temple are five years in the future, even as Mark is writing his gospel. So the Jewish people in Palestine revolted against Roman rule in A.D. 66. And as a result, the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. And after Titus conquered the city, he completely destroyed the Jewish temple, the Hebrew temple, the Israelites' temple. 
Roman troops carrying Roman standards. Those standards were, would have been topped with graven images of eagles or the image of the emperor. And by the way, the zealots who were you know, the resistance fighters during this period against Roman rule said those things were abominations. And to see the Roman eagle or the Roman image of Caesar in the holy precincts was an abomination of desolation. So they, that happened and then many, but as Titus began to encircle Jerusalem, many of the Jews fled into the city prior to the siege and they died slow deaths of, of starvation in the tens of thousands. It was indeed a great tribulation. You can go back and read the Jewish wars by Flavius uh, Josephus and he describes the kind of, of turmoil and terror that was going on in that city during that time. It's not pleasant reading. I'm not going to quote it here. But it was indeed a great tribulation. But what did Jesus tell his disciples when he warned them about this coming event? What did Jesus say? When you see these things about to happen, what was his imperative? Well, in the words of Monty Python, he said, run away, run away, run away. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You know, the early Christian historian Eusebius of Caesarea says that that is exactly what the early Christian church did, the church in Jerusalem. They remembered this prediction, thanks be to God, the prediction of Jesus. And instead of staying in Jerusalem for protection, before Titus had sealed the ring of steel and laid siege around Jerusalem, they fled eastward across the Jordan to Pella, and that early church was saved. Well, that's great. Thank you, Ben, for the history lesson. That's wonderful. But how is this relevant to my Christian life today? Well, good Bishop J.C. Ryle, with his characteristic clarity of thought, helps us with this. He's writing at the end of the 1800s. This is what J.C. Ryle says. We are taught in these verses the lawfulness of using means to provide for our own personal safety. The language of our Lord Jesus Christ on the subject is clear and unmistakable. Not a word is said to make us suppose that flight from danger in certain circumstances is unworthy of a Christian. As to the time prophesied of in this passage before us, men may differ widely. But as to the lawfulness of taking measures to avoid peril, the teaching of the passage is plain. In other words, J.C. Rowell is saying Jesus thinks it's okay to be a prepper. <laughs> Seriously, we can use common sense to prepare for difficult times. And also, when we see danger, it is lawful to flee. Jesus said we should also expect spiritual deception. Mark chapter 13, verse 6, and then following in verses 21 and 22. Many will come in my name, Jesus said, many will come in my name, saying, I am he and will lead many astray. And then, verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus says this is what is going to occur. There are going to be false teachers, false messiahs, and false prophets. Prophets, but that, seeing those things, is not the end. In fact, almost immediately, this prophecy, this apocalyptic statement began to be fulfilled. 
we see the apostles confront prophets, false prophets like Elamus in Acts chapter 13. We see the apostles calling out false teachers and false prophets in the other New Testament writings, too numerous to be accounted to this morning. And historically, historically, in A.D. 132, Simon bar Kokhba, means son of the star, son of a star, claimed to be Messiah, and he led the Jews in a second disastrous revolt against Roman rule, and it was worse than the 70 A.D. revolt after that. And yet, 2,000 years later, the church is still threatened, still threatened by false teaching and false teachers. The church in the West, yes, even the evangelical traditional church, is too willing to surrender to false teachers who encourage us to accommodate to the spirit of the age. But that's been true in every generation. False teachers are always saying, you need to try harder to fit, fit in. Surrender some Christian convictions. Surrender some Christian doctrine. Be accepted by the... Um, the learned despisers of Christianity. That's what you should do. We're always tempted to do that. And then sometimes we're tempted by other false teachers who would call us into extravagant and crazy stuff as well. Oh, I don't know, just turn on the TV sometime. You might see something like that. You know, Paul warned about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He said, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead... To suit their own desires, they will gather together around them a great, number, a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what is our Lord's imperative when we're faced with false teaching, false prophets, false messiahs? He literally says in verse 1, don't believe it. You've been told by Jesus, don't believe it. We are supposed to have faith in some things and not believe other things. Mark chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Verse 23, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So the enemy of our soul, the enemy of our souls is actively seeking to deceive and lead God's people astray. Right now, today, he's actively seeking to do that. Brothers and sisters, naivete and gullibility are not Christian virtues. Being naive is not a Christian virtue. Oh, you're so pure, you're naive. No, that's called foolishness. Naivete and gullibility are not Christian virtues. Jesus says, be on your guard. Brothers and sisters, we need to be tender-hearted and tough-minded. Tender-hearted and tough-minded. Far too often we are soft-headed and weak-willed. Be tender-hearted, but be tough-minded. We, uh, we need to have our spidey sense tuned way up. Let your spidey sense tingle when you start to encounter falsehood and error. You know, we tend to read something on social media that suits our prejudices or our disordered affections, and we lap it up, lap it up, not realizing we are drinking spiritual poison. This is one reason we need to be saturated in the Word of God. If we're going to avoid error and false teaching, we need to have sound doctrine and truth. Where would we find that? 
If only there was a place. Oh, I don't know, maybe the Bible. We could turn there and be deeply uh, enriched by the teaching of Scripture, and we will be fortified against it so that falsehood and error will not have a place in us, and the Holy Spirit can bring the truth of the Scriptures to our minds. Jesus said, expect, expect tumultuous world events and natural disasters, Mark 13, verses 7 and 8. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Wars and natural disasters, even man-made natural disasters, are nothing new. You know, among many younger people today, there is an uh, overarching sense of doom and dread associated with ecological concerns. We now live in a time in which climate change anxiety, climate change anxiety, climate change anxiety is a, is a real legitimate psychiatric diagnosis. We literally feel like this is the end of the world, that environmental Armageddon is upon us. So much so that many young people are choosing not to have children in response to their sense of impending doom. And while Christians have a biblical and sacramental obligation, I've taught on this at length, to tend and bless and beautify God's good creation, his good natural world, Jesus does tell us that natural disaster, even ecological disaster, is not the end. That's not the end. It is merely the beginning of the birth pains. So what is Jesus' ethical imperative as we survey international strife and natural calamity? Here's what he says. Instead of having that sense of gloom and doom, as if that's the end, Jesus says, he doesn't say it's good, he says, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is not the end. God is still in control. Wars and disasters create uh, terrible suffering, but that is not how this world will end. Jesus said that the normal course of the life of the church in the days to come is to, listen, expect persecution. Expect persecution. Mark chapter 13, verse 9, and then verses 12 and 13. Be on your guard. He says that more than once. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be, this is Jesus saying, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You will be hated by all. There is almost a Christian industry of how should we be liked. How now shall we be liked is the question that many, particularly, I think, uh, uh, in evangelical circles, how now shall we be liked? How can we be winsome? Well, I think we should be winsome. I think we should be kind and loving, all of those things. But it's not going to change the fact that Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of my name's sake. All it's going to take is bearing the name of Jesus authentically 
to bring hatred upon us. Richard L. Allen has said that the greatest story never told of the early 21st century is the global war on Christians. A recent report on global persecution, it was issued back in uh, 2019 by the Bishop of Truro in England, reveals that though a third of a third of the world's population faces persecution, Christians make up as much as 80%, 80% of the persecuted. The Christian nonprofit Aid to the Church in Need concludes that persecution is today worse than at any time in history, and it's getting worse. Open Doors estimates, another charity uh, devoted to caring for Christians who are persecuted, Open Doors estimates that 245 million Christians suffer at least high levels of persecution. We can expect this, yes, even in the secular post-Christian West. Writing in the journal First Things a while back, Daniel Philpott said, no American has suffered the fate of Helen Berhani, Helen Berhani, the Eritrean gospel singer whose evangelizing earned her two years in a shipping container in the middle of a hot desert. But in the last eight decades, American Christians, like Christians across the West, have faced a rising trend of what Pope Francis has termed polite persecution. As the Pope explains, if you don't like this, you will be punished, you will lose your job and many things, or you will be set aside. At the hands, Philpott goes on to say, at the hands of bureaucrats, bosses, and judges, Christian merchants, universities, schools, hospitals, charities, campus fellowships, students, public officials, employees, and citizens have been fired, fined, shut down, threatened with loss of accreditation, and evicted, evicted for living out traditional convictions about marriage and sexuality. So what does Jesus say about persecution? Well, Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 9, be on your guard. And in Mark 13, 13, he said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, we need to gird up our minds with the reality that this is a part of being a faithful Christian. It's a natural part of being a faithful Christian. It is not a sign of the end of the world but of living in the between times. What is, our, what is our response to be? It is to endure. The church's response is to not give up, rather to continue to witness, listen, to God's love even when we are faced with hatred. We witness to the, this is the most powerful witness we can give, to witness to the love of Jesus, his heart of love in the face of the hatred of the world. That's what he did on the cross. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, down through the ages, Christians have been able to do the same thing, sometimes in very dramatic ways, to offer the love of Christ in the face of hatred. This isn't the end. It's merely the beginning of birth pangs. And if it's the beginning of birth pangs, that means something is being born. God is birthing a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, and that promises to be wonderful. History is not out of control. God is moving us 
towards his purpose and his end. And that brings us to the conclusion of this text we heard this morning. Jesus said, after, okay, this uh, destruction of Jerusalem, not the end. Tumultuous international events and all of the natural disasters, that's not the end. Persecution, that's not the end. Spiritual deception, that's not the end. But he does say, finally, expect the end. Expect his return. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 and 27, through 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of, the, of heaven. So Christ's return in this passage, unlike these other things that seem to be signs, Christ says his return is going to be sudden, and yes, we should expect the unexpected, because he says his return will be sudden and unexpected. And in that case, what does he tell us to do? That's the information. What's the imperative? Jesus says in Mark 13, 32 and 33, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And so that means that, brothers and sisters, our posture is to be of constant vigilance, constant readiness to meet our Lord at His coming. And that is why this Sunday and every Sunday at Christ Church, we say this together. And I think you may remember it, and so say it with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.